0: You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Teddy Bears and Sunshine. All that glitters is not gold. Launching ISO 26,000. Early in 2010, at the invitation of Leora Black, Director of the Australian Centre for CSR, I travelled to Melbourne to give a keynote address on Leadership for Social Responsibility at the ACCSR Annual Conference. The conference theme was ISO 26,000 in a Post-Financial Crisis World, And I was sharing the platform with Jonathan Hanks, a South African friend and colleague who also happened to be convener of the ISO 26000 Integrated Drafting Task Force, as well as being Managing Director of Insight, a South African sustainability consultancy. In my talk, no doubt to Jonathan's chagrin, I suggested that ISO 26000 is like a teddy bear Something cute and fluffy, which may help companies sleep better at night, but nothing like the grizzly bear that we really need to shake business out of their CSR complacency. Of course, it was unfair of me to make so light of a five-year international process of negotiation involving over 90 countries, which managed to reach some measure of agreement on tricky issues such as human rights and fair operating practices. But I really do believe that as a non-certifiable guidance standard that promotes a strategic approach to CSR rather than a transformative CSR 2.0 agenda, ISO 26000 may prove to be more of a damp squib than a big bang. Having said that, I must give ISO 26000 its due – As a foundation document that encapsulates the international consensus on social responsibility, it is to be applauded and recommended. Its greatest achievement, and what I expect may prove to be its most enduring legacy, is the way in which it broadens the scope of CSR, beyond big corporates to any organisation, and second, beyond an exclusive focus on philanthropic community development to incorporate six other core subjects, namely organisational governance, human rights, labour rights, the environment, fair operating practices and consumer issues. Besides this, countries like Denmark are ignoring ISO's strong declaration against ISO 26000 certification schemes and have begun to develop their own certifiable national standard DS26000. I expect consultants will also increasingly offer ISO26000 compliance auditing services, irrespective of whether they are sanctioned by ISO. The fact is that business, governments, and civil society alike want standards on social responsibility with teeth. A decade of weak standards without sanction, like the UN Global Compact and AA-1000, as compared with tougher certification schemes like SA-8000 and the Forest Stewardship Council, have taught us where real value lies. At the ACCSR conference, I was impressed by a number of people and organizations who I took the opportunity to interview, including Vince Hawesworth, then CEO of Hydro Tasmania, Vanessa Zimmerman, a legal advisor to the UN Special Representative on Business and Human Rights, Nathan Fabian, CEO of the Investor Group on Climate Change for Australia and New Zealand, Bruce Harvey, Global Practice Leader on Communities for Rio Tinto, and Neil Birchnell, General Manager of Business Community Investment for Transfield Services a global provider of operations, maintenance and asset and project management services. Too much sun. Besides the conference, I was invited by Susan Young, then associate professor at La Trobe Graduate School of Management, to teach a module on their Masters in Business and Society course. I also ran one-day workshops for ACCSR, in Melbourne and the University of New South Wales in Sydney, and gave talks for the consultancy Benara, CSR Sydney and Victoria University. My overwhelming sense from all of these interactions in 2010 was a huge frustration among people working in sustainable business in Australia. The biggest reasons cited were an unsupportive, some even say a backward, government policy environment and the negative lobby power of Australia's two biggest industries, extractives, mainly mining, and agriculture. I was really surprised that after about 10 years of severe drought, fatalities from runaway bushfires in Victoria, and unprecedented flood and storm damage from tropical cyclone Yasi, still most Australians seem to be in a state of climate change denial. But perhaps that is testimony to the power of vested interests supporting the status quo. Also, at the time, the opposition party was scoring cheap political points by calling everything to do with climate change a tax and hence to be avoided at all costs. They failed to mention, of course, that... According to the Stern review, it may cost around 1% of GDP now, but could cost as much as 20% of GDP later if immediate action is not taken. That is politics. Tax the future 20 times as heavily in order to get easy votes today. I did hear one other explanation for why the take-up of sustainable business in general, and climate action in particular, is so lacklustre in Australia. There's too much sun, said my friend and sustainability consultant Samantha Graham. She was making a point that Australians are too laid back about life. They are eternal optimists who believe that things will get better sooner or later. There may be a grain of truth in this, but I also saw some really progressive work going on in stakeholder engagement and social impact management among the mining companies, such as by Alcoa, and biodiversity management, such as by Rio Tinto. Also, I noticed that, having had a banking scare about a decade earlier, Australia's tight corporate governance practices sheltered them from the worst effects of the global financial crisis. Of course, it also helped that China's demand for their natural resources continued unabated. An Experiment in Generosity one of the highlights of my trip was spending some time with Shanaka Fernando, founder of the Melbourne based restaurant chain Lentil as Anything, who was introduced to me by New Zealand sustainability business academic Colin Higgins. Fernando is one of those rare pioneers who are prepared to live by their convictions, flaunt social convention, and challenge the status quo. After a failed stint as a Buddhist monk in his home country of Sri Lanka, he fell in love with a nun, had an affair and got kicked out. He came to Australia and dabbled in law studies. It wasn't fulfilling, so he gave it up to travel on a shoestring around the third world for six years, learning about culture and community along the way. When he returned to Australia... Fernando started a business importing saris made from recycled fabrics, which gave him enough money to start his current social experiment, Lentil as Anything. I call it a social experiment because the business goes beyond simply being a social enterprise. Like other social businesses, Lentil as Anything embraces the entrepreneurial spirit while it seeks to have a positive influence on the development of the community. But there is something more unique, more challenging, more sublime and more subversive. It gets to the heart of human nature and the essence of Western capitalism. I'm talking about generosity and money. Through Lentil as anything, Fernando is trying to foster a culture of generosity. What would happen, he wondered, If there were no prices, what if people only paid what they could afford or what they thought the food was worth or what they were inspired to pay? Is there enough generosity left in Western society to run a viable business on the principle of giving and sharing rather than profit maximisation? Would the free rider problem kick in with people taking advantage of the free food? According to Fernando, all kinds of interesting things happen when people are faced with the magic box, the mini treasure chest that people can place their donations in as they leave. A few, very very few, take advantage. Some, who genuinely can't afford to pay, offer to chop vegetables or do dishes. Others make their own assessment of what is a fair price to pay. Some are quietly generous while others make a theatrical gesture of placing their donation in the magic box. But it goes beyond the money. Other unexpected things happen too. As you look around, you notice that this is not a people-like-me experience, where those from your own socio-economic or ethno-cultural strata surround you. Lentil has succeeded in mixing it up, cutting across traditional divides, And because of the philosophy of the place, you may find a wealthy businessman striking up a conversation with a subsistence artist. When you create these kinds of creative connection, it is a potent recipe for innovation, for rediscovering what it means to be human. Fernando insists that lentil is first and foremost about good food, interestingly vegetarian food, because that is the most inclusive making concerns about halal or kosher or meat-based preparation irrelevant. But it is clearly more than that. It is an invitation to restore our faith in the essential goodness of humanity and the wholesome nature of community. What, you may ask, has all this to do with sustainable business? Well, I believe it is entrepreneurs like Fernando that are at the forefront of the CSR 2.0 wave, If we subject lentil to the five tests of CSR 2.0 – more about these in subsequent episode. it scores well. Is lentil creative? Yes. Is it scalable? Not sure. Is it responsive? Extremely. Is it global? Yes, it thinks globally but acts locally. And is it circular? Mostly, yes. Local production and recycling are part of the philosophy and practice. Even on scalability, Lentil gave me pause to think about what I meant by that. If we accept the long-tail approach to scalability, popularised by Chris Anderson, Lentil does not have to go from four to 40,000 restaurants to be scalable. It could be that 10,000 independent restaurants inspired by the Lentil philosophy pop up all around the world and turn the generosity experiment into a global movement. As the world recovers from the age of greed that culminated in the global financial crisis, it is refreshing to be reminded of the rightful place of money in society. Money is always a means to an end, never an end in itself. Melbourne, and indeed the world, would be a poorer place if brave experiments like lentil as anything were allowed to fail. Let us make sure that, in the battle for generosity versus money, generosity wins hands down. The State of CSR The next year I was back in Melbourne to teach at La Trobe again and to help launch ACCSR's State of CSR Annual Review. The findings, based on the survey of almost 500 mid-to-senior-level managers across a broad spectrum of organisations and industry, included the following. 80% agreed that CSR had contributed to a strengthened reputation, as compared with less than 40% the previous year, while just over 60% said that CSR contributed to reducing costs in their organisations. Reducing environmental impact and building understanding of CSR within their organisations were rated as the most important issues for CSR managers. CSR staff and budgets cut in the first years of the global financial crisis were rebounding with a strong increase in hiring and spending forecast. Reflecting on the findings, Leora Black told me she was struck by the ambiguous signals that Australian business are giving about the role of sustainable business in their organisations. On the one hand, it's clear and very heartening to see that more organisations are seeing value from sustainable business that goes beyond reputation and risk management. But on the other hand, most of the respondents said that getting organisational buy-in is the single biggest obstacle to their success with sustainable business. According to Leora Black, the issue lies with the nature of the CSR function itself, probably the most cross-functional, cross-silo business discipline to emerge so far in the history of management. It requires a profound level of cross-business functionality and integration to be effective. This is a real challenge to most companies, which are founded on vertical accountabilities. One of the survey findings I found most interesting and encouraging was that there was a significant decline in organisations reporting the need to understand climate change, but an increase in organisations using sustainable business as part of their regulatory response. Might this suggest that Australian organisations were beginning to move towards a more integrated approach to managing climate change? Was this a sign of a shift from its position of climate change denial, if not on the public streets, then at least in the plush boardrooms of Australia. A new era in climate policy. As it turned out, in a move that shocked, surprised, delighted and infuriated many across the country and the world, it was Australia's parliamentary halls rather than its corporate suites that the most significant reforms on climate change emerged from. Prime Minister then Julia Gillard, successfully guided 18 clean energy bills through the Senate, which included the provision for a $23 per tonne carbon tax to be paid by 500 big polluters. The carbon tax, which begins as a fixed price before converting to an emissions trading scheme, was forecast to raise $24.5 billion in the first three years. To compensate households for the impact of the tax, the government planned to distribute $15 billion through pensions and benefit increases, tax cuts and other assistance for high power bills and related cost increases. The government also planned to spend $10 billion compensating business particularly trade-exposed polluters in sectors such as steel manufacturing. In launching the radical policy, Gillard said, and not without justification, we have made history. After all of these years of debate and division, our nation has got the job done, and we will see a price on carbon pollution. This comes after a quarter of a century of scientific warnings, 37 parliamentary inquiries and years of bitter debate and divisions. According to National Affairs, the Clean Energy Future Package relies on a significant expansion of cleaner gas-fired power generation to help replace coal-fired power and meet targets of cutting Australia's carbon emissions by 80% by 2050. Renewable energy, such as wind and solar power, are expected to expand even faster, helped by the new $10 billion Clean Energy Fund, a condition of the Green Party's support for the legislation. In the end, perhaps, this was what was the Achilles' heel for Julia Gillard, but these are encouraging signs – I still think that Australia faces an uphill battle against the vested interests and economic power of its mining and agro-industrial sectors, not only in the climate change space, but also in adopting transformative CSR. But perhaps if their Labour government remains strong and their more forward-looking and image-focused financial and tourism sectors can take up the CSR 2.0 challenge, We might just see Australia leapfrogging from being CSR laggards to sustainable business leaders. After my visit, I concluded a blog on sustainable business in Australia entitled Too Much Sun with the cheeky words, Why worry about disaster scenarios for 2050 when the sun is shining, the skies are blue and there's a cracking game of sport on? CSR what? Surf's up! I will be more than happy to have my words be proved unfair and inaccurate.